Well, of all the texts that I had to choose from, because just a reminder for those of you who might be um, new or newer, we're encouraging our church to read through the New Testament this summer, and then the preaching assignment for our preaching team is whoever's on that week can choose any text that was assigned in the reading schedule from the previous week. And we were in a bunch of Luke and all of 1 Corinthians, and I could have chosen any of that. And actually, I had chosen something from Luke initially, but as I was doing my reading and I was in 1 Corinthians, I came across a text again that I had never preached on, and that it was going to be fairly challenging to preach on, and I think somewhat difficult to make relevant. And so, of course, I chose that text <laughs> to preach on the subject of church discipline. When we see things going on in the church, is there still public discipline that takes place? And this message is called, Spare the Rod, Spoil the Church, or Whatever Happened to Church Discipline. Now, if you've been doing some of that reading, you came across some pretty interesting stuff uh, this week. And one of those was this idea of church discipline. And you may have had your eyebrows, eyebrows raised a little bit when you look at the severity. Maybe some read it for the first time in 1 Corinthians uh, 5. The severity of church discipline that was practiced in some cases. I mean, when you see somebody who's not living the way they should live, the the public action that the whole church takes to correct this person. Pretty severe. Let's read this text. We're going to read all of 1 Corinthians 5 because that chapter is about one such case. Now to set this up, you have the church in Corinth, which had all sorts of things to learn. They were doing the best they knew how to do, but Paul had to correct them a lot. The Apostle Paul's writing this to the church in response to one specific thing he had heard about. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. So Paul's writing to this church and he says, among other things, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud of it. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship, the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, and here's the part that may have raised your eyes a little, eyebrows a little bit, I've decided to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's interesting. Get rid of the old yeast so that you can become what you already are. This is in a sense of what he says. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice, wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister 
but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. Don't even have, don't even eat with such a person. Pretty severe. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Tough word. Still, we pray that God would add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired message to us. Would you go ahead and be seated? Yes, and of all the texts available to me, I had freedom of choice. I picked that one. It must have been a rough week, huh? But, I, you know, I've been interested in trying to get this figured out because something doesn't set right with me in reading this text and trying to figure out how, how does that apply to today. And on the one hand, having the deepest respect I know how to have for the scriptures and seeing them as prescriptive in our lives, but also aware that our social context today and even our ecclesiastical, our church context today, is something a little different. Uh, it might be different. And I, was, I struggled with that text, so I said, well, why not, why not tackle it? See if we can pull this off. So here we go. You know, I serve on our denomination's board of ordered ministry. So we're responsible for uh, interviewing people, reading their theological papers, and then giving them severe interviews about those papers and asking them to defend their positions. We are involved in caring for struggling or fallen pastors. Uh, we discipline pastors who refuse to receive that care. And you know, the covenant, our denomination, provides tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, every year for things like counseling for clergy or clergy spouses or their families, for spiritual direction and coaching and professional assessment or reassessment, even deep therapy and sometimes prolonged therapy when it's needed. And it's really rare, but when a covenant credentialed person, clergy person, proves to be unsafe because Churches are trusting this board of, of folks to say this pastor is safe. You can trust him or her. We say that when we grant a credential and when we recommend them for credential. But when a pastor uh, refuses the care that we ask uh, them to receive or proves to be unsafe and unfaithful, discipline is required. And when it's required, having virtually prayed ourselves hoarse and exhausted all other options with heavy, broken hearts, almost with feet in the mud, we're so reluctant to have to do this, but we will. We'll be forced sometimes, even though rarely, to remove a person's credential and sometimes effectively in their career, at least as a covenant pastor. Now, things being what they are, sadly, they can often just move on to the next denomination uh, or church and unsafe as they might be and unhealthy, which is neither good for the church nor their own uh, souls, kind of jump right in. But it's our intent to say, because care has been refused, because every effort for reconciliation and correction and a good future, that's a whole future, a healthy future, has been rejected, then we have to discipline as a denomination. Now, that text that I read is a little bit of a parallel with what we do denominationally. But people are going to respond, I think, basically two ways to that text today. 
First, they, they would say, okay, clergy, I get that. Disciplining clergy, I understand that. In fact, I'm even thankful that there's sort of denominational accountability for the pastors. Because you have to stop me, Michael, because I'm going to go, this is a, a, a hobby horse of mine, but pastor, people come and they bring their children to a church and they gather and they trust a pastor and that pastor dares to speak for God, should speak with that same authority, dares to do that. And people, a room full of people with their children sitting next to them, trust their souls and their theological understanding, at least the catalyst for it, to that pastor. It's important that there's accountability. And there's a group of people saying, wait a minute, are you safe? Can people trust you? Are you theologically sound? Are you within a reason for the biblical interpretations that you're offering? Especially in a denomination like the Covenant, where we offer quite a bit of theological latitude while still uh, you know, practicing being yielded to Scripture. You might say, I'm glad for clergy. Others might say, uh, but you might say, clergy, fine, but we don't do that with our church members, right? Clergy hold them accountable, but we'd never be that severe with a member of the church who's messing up, would we? Others would say, well, it's about time you preached on this. Why don't we practice church discipline like that if we're biblical people? Because the Bible teaches us to do it. Doesn't the Bible do that? So let's take a look at this text and see what's in there for us. Now again, we've been, just by way of reminder, we've been trying to structure our messages in this summer series around three movements, meaning, significance, and response. And the bulk of the time is given to the meaning. That's where we're intellectually going to look at the text, try to see what's in there, commentate on it a little bit, but try to understand the teaching that's there historically just for what it is. And then we move to significance, principalize it. What, what's there that's always true? What are some things we can pull out? And again, we're moving from uh, an intellectual exercise toward more of an artistic exercise. The art and science of interpretation is what we're trying to practice here this summer, even while we're reading these texts. So first, let's look at the meaning. What is actually going on in this text? First of all, we have Paul referencing what I would call the crimes that are committed. And the crime is twofold. And actually, he's rebuking the church and speaking about a situation in the church. Our first inclination is to look and say, the main crime is the fact that this young man, we assume he was a young man, is sexually intimate with his uh, father's wife. But the real challenge is to the church. So it's a twofold crime. The immorality, a man is being sexually intimate with his, probably his stepmother. And we would assume the father is no longer alive. We're assuming the best of a bad situation here. A marriage like this, a marriage between a son and a stepmother, even after the father has died, we don't know that for sure. We assume that. It seems reasonable to assume that. Otherwise, Paul might have said a whole lot more about this. Was forbidden by Jewish law upon which the gospel is based. But it was also forbidden by Roman law. And the Romans have not been known <laughs> as the stalwarts, the, 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 the lifters of uh, everything moral and ethical according to God. But even their law says you can't do this. 
can't get married. So we know that at least these two weren't married. So there's immorality at several levels, and what might, this might lead to would even be considered illegal. It might have been socially, they might have been socially calm about it, we don't know that for sure, in the, in the culture of the Corinthian church, but not even legal for them to move forward. So you've got this immorality, but then you have what Paul seems to be even more concerned with, or at least as concerned with, and that's the arrogance of the Corinthian church. He says, rather than being mortified, you've got this thing happening and you're arrogant about it. You're boasting about it. And I asked the question, about what were they boasting? Probably about how gracious and completely accepting they were. We, are, we get this message of grace so fully that we'll even seem to make space for or endorse this kind of lifestyle. They may have also been boasting. Verse 10 gives us a little bit of insight. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. He says, I wasn't at all meaning that you should not associate with the people of this world. You'd have to cut yourself off from everybody. It may be, by implication now, it may be that they were, on the one hand, boasting about their, their ability to show such grace, and on the other hand, being overly restrictive and separatist, separatistic from the folks that they were called to go and show grace to. They might have been saying, we don't associate with those guys, yet this very thing is going on in our own midst. We don't know. That's a reasonable conclusion. But I think that might have been what they were boasting about. Whatever it was, Paul corrects it. He addresses it. Instead of being mortified, you're boasting. So you've got the crimes. Then you've got the action as we're looking at church discipline. This is where it gets really interesting and a bit challenging. You have two points of action. We have the action the church is challenged to take, and we have the action that the apostle takes. And before doing this study this week, they were just sort of blurred to me. But I dig into this text and I think actually two specific points of action. The action the church is challenged to take is this, disassociate, create distance, separation. Verse 2, you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? And he finishes this chapter. Look, expel the person from among you. Disassociate. In other words, quit endorsing this behavior as normal and acceptable for followers of Christ. There should be something done that makes it clear that this is not normal, biblical, acceptable behavior. You, you can't just live as a community of Christians with no clarity about how we should live and probably how we shouldn't live. We at least could say that Paul is saying that. And he goes and he says, remove the person. But let's look at how this relates to today, today's situation. In that day, when you put somebody out of your fellowship, you put them out of Christian fellowship. They have no contact with the Christian church for communion, for the sacraments, for any of the sacraments, however many they believed there were back then. And when they're out of the fellowship of the church, there's no other church to go to to get back into fellowship. You're out, you're out. There were no other options. All of the churches in that 
region were churches that were submitted to the leadership of Paul and under the teaching of Paul. There was no church down the street, no denominations back then, just that Christian fellowship. You had made quite a statement to be part of that fellowship and cut off a lot of ties and offended maybe a lot of family members either. It was a bit of a scary thing, the threat of being put out. That was going on back in that time. And we have to understand what Paul is saying in light of the historical context of it. Not the case today. Today, if we publicly, quote unquote, excommunicate somebody, put somebody out of the fellowship, they just run down to the next fellowship. As has happened many, many, many times, we've been experiencing stuff like that. Folks going from one church to our church and our church to another church, our congregation, another congregation, and we all try to bless them. Pastors are trying to stay in good contact with each other, but it's just, not, I'm trying to say it's not the same thing that's going on. And that form of discipline to make the statement that this is not acceptable and then cause some repentance and some reconstruction of the heart was dependent upon the fact that you couldn't just go down the street and be re-engaged in community, another Christian community. And if that didn't work, go down the street and be re-engaged in another, another Christian community. It's important for us to understand that. Um, strictly applying church discipline from the first century setting, we're not really comparing apples to apples then. The principle of discipline and right and wrong and caring for people making good decisions is still in force. But imagine this, you ask somebody how long it will take you during rush hour, well not even rush hour, from 3.30 in the afternoon, how long will it take me to drive from Novato to Petaluma? And somebody says, well that's just an easy 10 minute drive, just right through the narrows and you're right up there. Give yourself 10 minutes. And that would work if we're talking 30 or 40 years ago, or even 10 years ago, maybe even 10 months ago. So somebody who experienced that drive is answering that question honestly and in a way that makes sense if they lived here back then and then are giving you instructions about now based on back then. But that time frame, that instruction is dependent upon back then's circumstances and context. Does that make sense? Today, you still want to make the same drive, and you still recognize it's going to take time, and you still want to plan for it, and you still must make the drive, and you must recognize it's going to take time, and you must plan for it, but you cannot apply that, uh, the, the, whatever you discover from yesterday's context. Today, you have to plan a little differently, because yesterday's things that existed are different than today's things that exist. I think my definition of eternity is construction on 101. I don't know when it's going to be done. It's just different. It doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's different. And so we have a different context and have to understand this challenge in that context. And then note the extent of the list of things that Paul addresses. We don't get to just pick our favorite, whatever the... Uh, cool, gross sin is, pick that one and focus on that. Look at the extent of what, uh, the extent to which Paul takes us. He says, I'm writing to you in verse 11, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is, and then listen to this, sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater. So there's this mixed understanding and uh, inclusive sort of understanding of God or a slanderer or a drunkard 
or a swindler. And then he goes, don't even have a meal with these people. Don't even eat with them. In those days, inviting somebody to have a meal with you meant something different than what it might mean today. To have somebody at your table was, in a sense, to endorse them. That's why Jesus had, that's why you hear Jesus is having dinner with, with the sinners, and the Jewish leaders are so upset with that. How can he be Messiah? He, look around you, everybody look around. He's sitting down to dinner with sinners. This does not fit. There was something different about having a meal then. What's Paul saying? It's about endorsement. It's about, look, there is a standard of right and wrong, of truth and error. We live differently as Christians than the people around us live. There must be some sort of clarity offered when somebody is living in a way that's inconsistent with Christ. And it's at least the current application of whatever dis association. So that's the church's action. Do something about this, Paul said. But then you have the apostle's action. And this is really rough. He says, I have decided to deliver such a person over to Satan. Yeah, well, that's a new definition of grace for me. <laughs> the other time this phrase occurs is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it's verse 20. Only other place that same language is found. We may have a parallel to, at some level in, the, in Acts 5 with the experience of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they, they sell a field and then they give a portion of what they sold the field for to the ministry of the church, but then they present it as though they gave the whole thing. And then the apostle, the apostle doesn't even pronounce death for them at that point. He just says, why in the world did you lie to the Holy Spirit? But was it? You could have just said you gave 80%. We would have applauded you. But why did you just lie and say you gave the whole thing? When they recognized that they had lied to the Holy Spirit, bam, they fell over dead. But in any case, this is an apostolic action. You have the church's action that Paul instructs us uh, to take when there's discipline that's needed, and that's to disassociate, in some way, draw a line. And you have the apostolic action. I've decided to deliver over to Satan for reconstruction of their soul, whatever that means and however he does that. It's not clear in the text. Some of your texts will say, I have decided. Others, other texts won't say, I have decided. You have in verse 5 different translations, and depending on what translation you have. Uh, when you're gathered together, deliver this one over, put him out. That's because the language is unclear. It's actually that verb that's translated to decide, or I've decided, is an infinitive. To decide, to deliver. It's just a rough sentence. And it goes back and begs for something more concrete, another verb to be attached to. So the translators, they're being accurate, no matter how that's laid out there. But it's not the easiest thing in the world to translate. And you would expect that if Paul is saying, look, church, decide for yourselves to take this action, he would have offered an imperative, a command, which would have been clearly seen in the way that it was written. But he doesn't. He leaves the infinitive. The idea there is Paul is saying, I've made this decision. You enact it for me, but I've made this decision. And he also goes out of his way to say, yeah, in case you're hesitant about that, I'm with you in spirit as though I'm really there. Just get this thing done for me. Here's what I've decided. In 1 Timothy, I've decided, Timothy, to do this. In every case, 
that severity of delivering somebody over to Satan by releasing them from the church is an apostolic function, and it's a very rare one in Scripture. So we are certainly within reason to question whether it's a form of discipline churches today are required to practice. For us to say, we've decided to, to separate you from us and then deliver you over to Satan for the destruction of whatever is messing you up so that you might be made whole someday. It's more to do with the apostles' command, and it's a rare thing that we don't fully understand than for a church to do that. And also remember, the goal was always transformation. The goal of any kind of discipline is restoration. It's not primarily punitive. It's primarily meant to be restorative. There's always a tender, soft... The other day, uh, our grandson was eating breakfast, and my daughter, rightly so, was trying to teach him, yes, or, uh, uh, to say, teach him what no means. And this kid gets a kick out of taking his food and throwing it off the... Um, the dogs all of a sudden love Spider when he's having breakfast. You know, dogs are all around. They don't want anything to do with him. Well, one of them doesn't during the day, but when he's eating, he's their buddies. And so they come around the high chair, right? And he sees that and he giggles and he looks to see if his mother's watching and slides a piece of the sandwich down. So they watch the dog eat and then he giggles. And Becca says, Oliver, no. Don't feed the dogs your food. And that little cherub stared at her and pushed another piece off. <laughs> And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, no, don't spank him, don't. I can't watch this. Oliver, no. She looks at him, takes his cheeks, try to be severe with him. Understand? No. And when she turns her back, so she noticed that, and she took his little hand, and she gave a little slap. No. And he started crying. Big alligator tears coming down. Now, Grandpa's over there saying, you, you should never, ever spank my grandson. He's crying, for goodness. It's, I'm aching inside. At the same time, I know she's not just spanking his hand for throwing a sandwich on the floor. She's saving his life so that when he runs into the street and a car's coming and she says no, he knows not to go. But it hurts to do that. Discipline is not punitive. We don't get a kick out of watching somebody suffer. It's restorative, always restorative. We need to remember that in, um, in, this, in this text. Well, let's look at some of the significance of this and run rather quickly because I've, I've just got a couple minutes before I need to dismiss you. I'm not even sure on the slides, uh, I'm, I'm not even sure we're going to go to all of these. or I'll, I'll go pretty quickly through them. Here's some things that I saw as significance, significant from, from this text. The fact that something's normal in society or even legal in society doesn't mean it's normal for the Christ follower. And for some of us, you say, well, duh, that's obvious. For others of us, well, well no, it's not so obvious. The marriage of a son to his widowed stepmom would not even have been allowed, even in Roman society. But some of the other things that Paul forbids certainly would have been. It used to be that laws were decided based on cultural values. Now that's completely flipped. Cultural values are based on what's legal. 
That's why you hear somebody say, well, what's wrong with this? It's legal. So we look at what's legal, and we now decide that's okay to do then. It used to be the other way around. We'd look at what culture said is valuable, and pretty good values in the past, and then we would draw our laws out based on that. So as unpopular and crazy as it sounds, to say things like, for the Christian, sexual intimacy is only for marriage, and marriage is only one man and one woman, is weird to everybody else. But it's still true. That hasn't changed. And we'll not quit preaching it that way. The use of drugs or alcohol for the exclusive purpose of getting high. I don't care what's legal. That's still wrong. Greed and oppression. That's not only legal. It's made legal even though it's officially wrong. It's still endorsed. In fact, much of our economy is sometimes based on it. And we found ways to make that sound less offensive. But the fact that something's normal in society doesn't mean it's normal for the Christ follower. Slandering a person. You say, well, that's not legal. Really? Ask a small business owner who's a friend of yours how they feel about Yelp. No accountability. You can trash a business because you had one bad experience there on Yelp. It's really a legal form of slander. On and on and on. So that's one of the points of significance. The fact that something's normal in society or even legal doesn't mean it's normal for the Christ follower. And the church needs to keep reminding the community of Christians. We're following Jesus. We live differently. We live with humility and tenderness, but we live differently. And then looking at the question, what's the modern equivalent of disassociation because we no longer live where there's one church in town, one access to, the, to communion, one access to fellowship, and if you're put out of that, that local congregation, you're, you're drifting. We no longer live in that context. I draw this conclusion. A person can be beloved by the church but still make choices that limit his or her opportunities for connection and ministry. Choices that are not consistent with Christian teaching Maybe the disassociation parallel is this. You make those choices, we're never going to endorse those choices. So you have limited yourself from certain points of connection and even ministry in the church. And opinions differ differ among Christian leaders and, and pastors about the modern equivalent. Some churches would say, well, it's attendance. You can't even come to worship if you're living an immoral life. Others would say, oh, it's public involvement, so you can't be a musician or on the worship team or anything like that, anything public that might imply an endorsement or a laziness about the position, but you can come and actually sit in a seat. Some would say anything, anything that implies endorsement or actions, and so they leave it open for discernment. Others, and this is where we uh, walk right now as we're in covenant, uh, uh, membership and leadership are probably where We're making those distinctions right now. But the trick is, we have this responsibility to teach the truth and live the truth of Scripture and let Scripture, like Kelly said, reveal to us God's will and then align ourselves with it on the one hand and to give complete access to anybody who's a seeker and hungry for something deeper. Give them complete access to the gospel and certainly even to the community of Christ, without endorsing things that are not acceptable 
and consistent with Scripture. So that's a real trick of our time. But a person can be beloved by the church, but still make choices that limit them in the church. Even in the Jewish temple, maybe that's, and we'll end with this. You look at the Jewish temple. They had this figured out. Rigid Jewish leaders. Here's the law, that's what we do, that's it. But even in the Jewish temple, there was an outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. And folks who were not practicing Judaism, but still somehow spiritually hungry, were even allowed at least there to come and pray and talk theology and seek God. They limited themselves by their choice to not live a life that's consistent with Jewish teaching, but they weren't completely shut out from the Jewish community. They could come there, even even non-Jews, come into the court of the Gentiles and somehow engage with what was being taught. Maybe that's a model for us today because we want to practice the kind of restorative, redemptive discipline that's good for people, not endorse or even imply endorsement of things that are not consistent with being a follower of Christ, but also practice mercy goodness, kindness, humility, and give access to the gospel and, as importantly, the community of the gospel to the folks that need it most. That's quite a challenge, but we'll take it on. The last part of this message is to respond. And I want to encourage you to have conversation about this stuff over your lunch tables today. How will you respond to that text? Go back and read it again. How does that inform your own life? It's talking about church community life, but how does that inform your own life? The connections you make. What does take a stand mean? How do I connect with folks who live differently but still need Christ? Let's pray. Oh God, will you take our best intentions, the mistakes we even make because of our best intentions, Keep us close to truth. Holy Spirit, teach us how to apply these things that you offer from ancient times. Most of all, Lord Jesus, we want you to actually be Lord, our guide, our leader, and to give us the gift of being a redemptive, corrective, restorative, humble force in your world. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Would you stand now and be dismissed with this blessing? And now may you go and remember that you are that child sitting in the high chair pushing your peanut butter and jelly sandwich off when your dad says stop. That's us. What does God require of us? There's something in there about walking humbly with our God and loving mercy. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Walk in truth. Go and do that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.